Les Wild Lovers was one of Brent Curtis's favorite topics to speak on, to speak about. In fact, the whole idea of the sacred romance and the lectures that then birthed the book actually just began as conversations that Brent and I would have in a pub downtown late at night in Colorado Springs. And we got about several months into those conversations, and I said to Brent one evening, Brent, I think a lot of people would actually like to listen in on this. I think this is some really good stuff and very universal to the human heart. And out of that, we began speaking on it and doing some lectures, holding some conferences. And we found those tapes. We found one of them, one set. So we've been airing that here on the Ransomed Heart podcast. We're now in session seven of a 10-part series. And this week, Brent Curtis is speaking on Less Wild Lovers. Given that we still are in Act 3, it's worth looking at the issue of living with less wild lovers than God. And by now, I I hope the, the story theme is becoming very clear that the issue is the love affair between Christ and his people, and indeed the whole world. As the scripture tells us, that God is willing that none should perish and that all should come to life in Christ. And yet, because we do live under the hail of life's arrows and because we do live under the interpretation of those arrows by the evil one, the enemy of our souls, we tend to forget the story. In the time of our innocence, when we were young, Luke's age, John talked about his son Luke, a real character. And I use innocence not to mean sinlessness, but just before our experience with the arrows crystallized into a way of life, which is the false self, In our innocence, we trusted in good because we hadn't yet been overcome by evil. Think of the little girl who runs joyfully to her mother and father with crayon scrawl and says, look, Mommy and Daddy, I drew you. There is no thought in her mind of, I wonder if my portrait is done well enough for Mom and Dad's acceptance. It is just given with joy and given with pleasure, right? Or the little boy who comes to the supper table and his face is still full of the day's adventure down at the creek that runs behind his house where he's fighting dragons with his wooden sword and his only props other than that are a broken cap gun that hasn't worked for years. And already he's planning the next day's campaign against the bad guys and you can see it on his face. My younger son often has that look. He just turned eight not long ago. Most of us remember the time of our innocence as a haunting. It calls to us unexpectedly in the words and melody of certain songs which in the words of a friend have become the soundtrack of our lives. No matter how old we get, that music is always the music that speaks to us. The music that my younger sons think is so stupid and pathetic already at their sophisticated ages. Sometimes it comes to us in the smile of a friend or the laughter of our children or their tears. Sometimes it comes in the calling to mind of a mischievous face that still believed in joy, the smell of a perfume, the reading of a story, or the reading of a poem. However it comes, the haunting inside of us, the haunting that comes out of that desire for things that we really hoped life would be all about as kids, often brings with it a poignancy of ache, doesn't it? 
the sense that we stood at a crossroad somewhere in our past and chose a turning that left some shining part of ourselves, maybe the best part, behind. Left it behind with the passion of a youthful love or the calling of a heart vocation that we didn't pursue, or simply in the sigh of coming to terms with everyday requirements of life. Whenever I hear the old Frankie Avalon song, Venus, my soundtrack, I see the blue eyes and dark hair of my first teenage love, Kathleen McMurray. She was uh, a goddess who just happened to attend Immaculate Heart of Mary Academy in northern Idaho, where I was also enrolled as less than a god. I would see her coming down the hallway and just be speechless. My 12-year-old and I had a great talk about this week. He has his Kathleen in his sixth grade class, a girl by the name of Becky. And I said, well, what do you like about Becky, Drew? And she said, well, she's got these eyes that you can see from all over the room. I don't know, Dad. It's something about them. She used to be just my friend, and I could talk to her real easy. But all of a sudden, I started liking her. And now everything I say sounds real stupid when I say it. <laughs> I thought, welcome to the years of torture called <laughs> romance. But... I remember standing under the mistletoe with Kathleen one Christmas when I was a sophomore. We got kind of shoved there by some friends, quote-unquote, that knew I liked her, and I was too shy to kiss her, and I have regretted that ever <laughs> since. I called her a few months ago, in fact. I hadn't spoken to her in all those years. She's now getting ready to be a grandmother. I don't know how she could dare do that on me, very pleasant, warm conversation, but the haunted memory of her is gone. Our family moved not longer after that mistletoe incident, and I thought back then that I had kind of lost the romance when I lost Kathleen. I'd never heard C.S. Lewis's words that would have been so helpful back at that time, those teenage years. Lewis says this, the romance we're looking for is not in the people or places. It only comes through them, and what comes through them is longing. They're not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we've not found, the echo of a tune we've never heard, news from a country we've never visited. Do you begin to feel the whole thing of desire that begins with romantic love of a young boy, but somehow goes much deeper and further than that, only most of us never know that. All of us have points of contact, those geographies where the transcendence of the romance seared our hearts, whether it was uh, your Kathleen or your John or uh, a place that was kind of the Camelot of your growing up years. For some of us, it's the fragrance of lilacs from our old neighborhood brings that back. And from others, the salt air and seagrass where our family's vacation by the shore, and those special times and special friends. For some, it's the sound of angry voices, again, through our parents' bedroom wall, or the memory of trying to win our father's attention from the evening newspaper. Whatever our memories are, these things are captured in our hearts and return to haunt us whenever we go back to their heart locale. At the end of the movie, A River Runs Through It, which is a story of two young boys, true story, whose father was a Presbyterian minister in Montana, 
went where their house was this summer in Missoula and visited the church where Norman McLean's father preached. But they found the romance in this connection with their father and fly fishing and just the beauty and the grace of that. And the older son, Norman, is standing in, a, in the river that they fished in as a young boy towards the end of his life. All of his family has died and he's, he's remembering back to all that was there. And he says this, Now nearly all those I loved and did not understand in my youth are dead, even Jessie, my wife. But I still reach out to them when I am alone in the half-light of the canyon. All existence seems to fade to a being with my soul and memories and the sounds of the big Blackfoot River and a four-count rhythm and a hope that a trout will rise. I am haunted by waters. Does this haunting within us all when we're carried to those places, whatever they may be for each of us, have anything to do with the spiritual life or with God? There is a depth of longing within each of us, as John has been saying, that is the desire for nothing less than the deepest kind of intimacy that we can fantasize about in our best fantasies. There's a scene in uh, Paradise Lost where Adam, before the fall, is talking to Raphael, the angel that has come down to kind of check and see how he's doing. And Adam basically is saying, gosh, Raphael, Eve and I have just been together in all the sense of that word. What do you have in heaven to compare with that? And Raphael blushes somewhat in Milton's description and says, well, Physical love is good enough for you now, Adam. We in heaven have something far deeper which is not time for you to know about. Wow, I wonder what that could be. We have a desire not only to see beauty but be merged with it. You know, in all the Mafia, the Godfather movies, there's the, the guy living in the small story of organized crime, but he's got enough money to buy himself what? A beautiful woman to drape on one arm, maybe on both arms. A beautiful house by the sea with beautiful gardens, a beautiful view. His attempt to merge himself with beauty in the only way he knows how. We have a desire in us to be caught up in a grand adventure that has meaning, like the Confederate soldier I mentioned last night. So many kinds of religious instruction ask us to live the spiritual life by either killing or ignoring the depth of desire that God has placed within us. God has placed within each of us a heart-shaped vacuum, said Blaise Pascal, and the depth of desire in our hearts as human beings is the very dwelling place that God has created for himself, and it will remain largely empty until Christ himself fills it. Holding our hearts in partial emptiness, though, for whatever God might choose to fill it with is an idea almost lost from our religious teaching. Most of us have learned to handle the desire of our hearts with smaller and more possible romances that this life does seem to offer. Career, the next vacation, electronic gadgetry, romance novels. Some of us indulge in endless nostalgia about the good old days, which we convince ourselves really did meet our heart's desire. Remember Ashley in Gone with the Wind, kind of the southern gentleman that Scarlett was trying to convince herself she loved because there was something transcendent about him 
And what it was, was he constantly lived in the old south, the beauty of all that had been lost. And he was totally unavailable for the present. But by the time Scarlet figured that out, it was too late. Or there's some of us try to forget the past and jam the future all into the present, like the adrenaline jockeys on the Mountain Dew commercials. Been there, done that. One time or another, though, most of us forget the haunting altogether, or we try to, because it just threatens to cripple us for the things of everyday life that we feel like need to be done. Not long ago, uh, a good friend of mine was here from New Jersey. He's a pastor back there. And he had been out on vacation a week when we were talking. He'd been out to California on the coast. He said, for the first time in my life, standing on the coast of California, I knew that the beauty all around me was more than just nature. I knew it was God wooing my heart. And by the time he came to me in Colorado to go up in the mountains and hang out for a few days, he was just saying, and he's saying this with tears, I am so in touch again with the depth of my heart that I forget about in everyday life. It just doesn't seem like I can hold on to it and do what I need to do, being a pastor and a father and a husband and all the things that go with it. And he has a palm on his office wall, one of Robert Frost's palms. And he said, I hang it there because it reminds me that I so often live without this part of myself that's been lost. Robert Frost's poem goes like this, Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, her early leaves a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down to day, so nothing gold can stay. For so many of us, that just describes so well what we feel has happened to that shining something, the shimmering self that Beekner has talked about. We all, to some extent, take that and something that wanted to connect as children, even in the midst of all the confusing things going on in the adult world, that something that later swirled in our hearts when our particular Kathleen was around, amidst all the confusion of sexual passion and our longing for heart intimacy and how to handle that as a teenager, we take it and we push it through the loneliness and the ache and the turmoil of life through various stages of disconnection and hardness to another abiding place, a kind of resignation. Something inside of us says, this is the way it is like John on the curb so long ago as a young boy. I'd better learn to deal with it. I'm thinking that Act 3, Scene 2, The Fall, will go on forever. We lose heart. Resignation is not just the sigh that groans with something gone wrong. That can be redemptive if it doesn't let go of the haunting we've all experienced in our hearts. It's when the loss feels final, and that we give up on the romance, that we really into the place that Don Henley is talking about, the thing where it feels like all the fairy tales that we ever believed in have been poisoned and stolen from us, starting with the loss of family, going on to the loss of ideals and country and, 
and even the small town values we used to hold dear. Like Fantine and Les Miserables, the remembrance that we once had dreams that life would be so much fuller and so much more alive than it has turned out to be. Resignation is the acceptance of all of that loss as final. Even the way John, sitting on the curb so long ago, finally accepted it. Remember his sentence? That's okay. I don't need anyone. Resignation is the place where we make vows based on the denial of desire. And John's words, I don't need anyone, soon enough become, I won't need anyone. Much of what we call our personality is often a lifestyle based on the vows we make to never be vulnerable to desire again in the way that caused us so much pain. And like Don Henley, we decide that life is wherever we find it, romantic love, financial or career success, respected position in our church or our community, just losing ourselves in the endless sources of entertainment and escape that our culture offers us in abundance. Some of us were well into life by resignation already when God tracked us down and invited us into thirsting deeply again, embraced by his unconditional love. Remember your first love days? You think back on that. I was about 24, kind of a hippie back then, and had just come to know Christ through a prayer of my heart, kind of, God, if you're up there, show me, because I am lost. Begin to read the Bible on my own. Uh, God brought a friend in my life who had become a Christian, whatever that meant. But just everything was so alive, and the thought, good, the, the romance is out on the road ahead of me again. I thought it was lost. I thought it was gone when I left college with no sweetheart, no vocation. But it is. It's out there again. Remember how you just kind of jumped into all the stuff with enthusiasm back then? I was part of a Bible study in Camden, a bunch of black and white believers that just loved God very much. And the leader, a, a black friend named Barry Roberts, decided that we should go out witnessing on the streets of Camden, two by two, which if you know Camden, is a very dangerous story. And I remember going out with just a very attractive young black college girl like myself, same age, just become a new Christian. And the two of us walking around the streets of Camden, I'm thinking, I know we will be killed in a drive-by shooting. Once anyone sees you know, a black male, a white female, when there was so much racial strife and hatred going on back then. But we would go and talk to people about Christ, and amazingly, people would cry, people would talk about they had given up on their faith and renew their, their hearts to Christ, and it was a wonderful time. Remember those, those times in your own journey? And then that kind of turned into the days of business and activity where you just took on anything that the church wanted you to do. It became all things for all people. One summer, still with my long hair and all that, and had a motorcycle, but I took up the job of driving the bus to pick up the VBS six-year-olds for summer vacation Bible school. And I had a big Fu Manchu back then, and these little boys and girls decided that I was Mr. Mooney. You remember the Lucille Ball show, kind of the bald, uh, somewhat rotund figure, the straight man on her show? Well, for some reason, they thought that I looked like him. I thought I looked like, more like Captain America, but the eyes of youth never lie. Anyway, Awana, you know, Boys Brigade, teaching the college and career class, uh, going overseas in the summer just on the mission field. Remember just all those days when you did all that and it just felt like life was full? And then a certain restlessness started to creep in again. 
maybe a certain emptiness, a certain something that you thought you had left behind. Anybody ever struck by that somewhere on your spiritual journey? Not understanding that this is God himself speaking to us once again through our desire and frustrated by once again this outbreak of dissatisfaction in our hearts, this thing we thought we'd left behind. Many of us try to silence the voice by redoubling our religious activity. If we were on one church committee, we joined two. If we were having a 20-minute quiet time, 40 must be better. The whole more is better approach to spirituality. But this side of Eden, relationship with God, brings us all to a place where deeper work in our heart is called for if we're really going to be able to continue our spiritual journey. It's a new and deeper desert experience of the heart that very few of us recognize. God literally leads us into it out of a desire to free us more deeply from the small stories that the message of the arrows have told us we have to live in. And when we get to that place, healing and repentance and faith are called for in a way that we've not previously known. And the religion of more activity just does nothing at all to help us cross that chasm. God at that place wants to deal with the deeper heart wounds, the deeper things that have separated us from him. In fact, he says in Isaiah, I'll go before you and we'll level the mountains. I'll break down the gates of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I'll give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I'm the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. God's imagery there makes it very clear to us. He wants us to go on a journey. And we thought we were home, right? That now we could start life the way it was really meant. Still, that's not terribly frightening. Most of us know that the Christian life is about a pilgrimage of one kind or another. What we haven't sometimes thought about is what kind. The line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart, says Alexander Solhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago. Not realizing it's a journey of the heart that God is calling us to, many of us make a crucial mistake at this place in our life this restlessness, this boredom sometimes, this emptiness that seems to have come back. We stand at an intersection of two different highways. One is the highway of the heart. We look down it and we see it take a quick turn and it seems to disappear almost immediately and we can't see where it goes, but there seem to be a lot of ominous clouds in the distance. And it's terrain very few people in our lives have ever shown much interest in going with us on, much less volunteering to actually take the journey. And standing still long enough to look down that road of the heart and of things going on inside makes us aware that it may involve dealing with forgotten disappointment and old wounds that have never healed, a sense that we have to go back and address some of the wounds caused by the arrows. There's a great film out now, except that it has a lot of profanity in it, but it's still a great film called Goodwill Hunting. It's about the story of, of a young boy who just lives in this blue-collar neighborhood in Boston and works as a janitor at MIT, but he's brilliant. Uh, one day the professor puts up a, an equation on the board nobody can solve, and he just does it while he's sweeping the floor. But there's something that's happened in his heart, something in the past that won't let him leave the safety of the old neighborhood and his few friends. Something a wound that has to be addressed. 
And as the film goes on to portray, Robin Williams comes in and journeys with him in his heart back to that place to where he is literally stuck in his heart. And like Will, all of us feel the weight of things gone wrong when we try to take a step down the highway of the heart. The things going on inside that are so confusing, we don't know how to put words to, sometimes feeling like depression or even terror. We'd rather look around at that point for a book or a tape that might give us some direction from travelers that have passed the way of the heart before us. But when you read heart books, they all seem kind of vague and rambly and even suspiciously kind of new agey. They say things like, each heart has its own turns and overnights. Only God knows where your road leads. Come ahead, journey's purifying, the destination is good. Not very helpful, right? What does that mean? Faced with that kind of mystery and irritating vagueness, we look down the other highway that's moving away from the intersection, and it runs straight as far as the eye can see. The first night's lodging is clearly visible in the distance. Each mile's carefully marked with self-help books that promise success. We'll just follow the right formula. Three steps, again, to a better quiet time. Five steps to better communication in marriage, and so on. The roadmaps that these agents of agnosticism, which is, I think, what they really are, the roadmaps they provide, though, assure us that we don't need heart baggage on that journey, and it would only be in the way. They say things like, think on what's good, think on what's present, don't think on the bad, go ahead, taking those verses very much out of context. Well, feeling like this route is being booked by much more efficient travel agents, we strike off down the highway of discipline and duty with confidence, and all goes pretty well for a while, sometimes for years until we realize we're not feeling much anymore. We find ourselves struggling to weep with those who weep or even rejoice with those who rejoice. And we don't want to look people in the eye because they may want to engage us. Nothing inside feels very much engaged. And our passions, if we can find them at all, begin to show up in inappropriate fantasies and which our culture provides with us endless opportunity to indulge. Fantasies interspersed with depression and boredom and anxiety and anger that we thought we'd left behind years ago when we started the Christian journey. At that point, we come to realize, everyone, that our hearts have stolen away in the baggage and they are taking the journey with us, but under protest, some of us are still religious enough that morality matters, but willpower is the best thing that we can bring against it, and our hearts refuse to be killed. The best we can do is kill it well enough that as long as we're busy, we don't have to listen to the voice down there. Anything quasi-redemptive will do. At least we look like we're still believing on the outside. Some of the rest of us try to give our life, uh, or excuse me, our heart a life on the side. We decide the deadness is too high of a price to pay, so we try to get ourselves a hobby that soon begins to feel like an addiction. But nonetheless, either way, heart deadness or heart separation, our spiritual journey comes to a grinding halt because our hearts will no longer go with us. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, says Robert Frost in his perhaps best-known poem. And sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down one as long as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Ironically, having ignored that road that bent in the undergrowth and taken the more clear highway of discipline and duty, we find ourselves years later on our Christian journey 
at the very same place of resignation that we were at before we came to know Christ. We arrive at the town of Vanity Fair that John Bunyan describes to us in Pilgrim's Progress. It's a city populated with many of the heart companions we'd hoped to leave behind. Actually, deadness of spirit, lack of loving kindness, lust, pride, angers, and many others. Nonetheless, having been out on the journey for quite a few years by now, we figure maybe this is as close to the celestial city as we're going to get. And so we set up housekeeping and entertain ourselves as well as possible at the booths at Vanity Fair, which sell us a variety of soul curiosities and games, endless in their number. Some of them are very good in and of themselves. There's Bible study, community service, religious seminars, political action for worthy and moral causes, service to our church, going out to dinner and a movie. And then there are the hobbies. We try to convince ourselves that are eternally transcendent. Like, wow, I can't wait to ski deep powder. You know that one? Deep powder is great, but it will not touch the depth of desire God's placed in our hearts. Sadly, perhaps many, even most Christians, live out their days in resignation in Vanity Fair. They don't feel spiritual warfare because there's nothing going on. They're just filling in time. What a sad thought. Our problem, everyone, is still, what do we do with the depth of desire inside of us that God placed there himself? For many of us, the solution is to both become and take on lovers that are less wild than God. Remember when the Israelites were camped at the bottom of Mount Sinai and Moses had gone up to be with God, the top of the mountain was encompassed in fire and smoke and was literally shaking day and night. The Israelites stayed at the bottom 40 days wondering what was going on and they said, finally, this is too much. We have got to have a God that we can gotta get our hands on here, can kind of understand, collected all their jewelry and made the golden calf and then worshiped that because what was going on on the mountain was too confusing and too wild. And then to convince themselves they were still wild and crazy guys, they threw an orgy and did that. But that's a picture of what happens. What do we do with all this desire when we don't know what God is doing up on the mountain so many times? The spiritual world, says Howard Macy, cannot be made suburban. It is always frontier. And if we would live in it, we must accept and even rejoice that it remains untamed. But we try and domesticate the best way we know how. Uh, none of us lives in a totally black and white world, but I think there are two basic directions that we all kind of tend to take as we're taking on less wild lovers. And the first group of us choose some kind of anesthesia of the heart through some form of competence or order. The very thing God said we'd never be able to do through our own efforts, the curse thorns and thistles, but we try through countless avenues, don't we? There's perfect housekeeping and scripture memory and Bible study and a perfect lawn and a spotless garage and sex once a week and preparing and hostessing dinner parties that would make Martha Stewart proud. They're sending our children to the best sports camps so they, really we, will never experience disappointment that might provoke our thirst. There's formulaic religion that has three-step solutions to everything. There's giving up the dreams of our youth to take the place assigned to us by our parents or mentors. Uh, I know a woman is just a very talented woman and very gifted, lives here in the city, 
And she has the heart of a poet. All you have to do is sit with her a few minutes to realize, good grief, I wish I could talk like that. But for much of her journey, she just said, I felt like poetry was so useless, so frivolous. I thought I ought to get a job as an accountant, something really useful. And that's what many of her family encouraged her to, in fact, do. The greatest risk she ever took was to launch out and begin writing her poetry. That's what God placed in her. That's the depth of her heart. There's kind of a deal we make with Satan, y'all, when we take on these less wild lovers. We get some control over the unknowns life might bring to us if we followed our hearts. This particular friend, she had to really go against her parents' wishes to follow the road of being a poet. There's the danger. For some of us who have chosen anesthesia through competence and order to tame our heart and the hearts of anybody else who would love us, really, there's just a hail of fierce and identifiable arrows whose damage we try to contain simply by closing the door to the damaged heart places. The second group of us, rather than anesthetizing our hearts by some sort of competence and order, choose indulgence. We put our hope in meeting a lover who will give us some form of immediate gratification, you know, some taste of transcendence that will put a drop of water on our parched tongue. For men, that is so often pornography. For women, romance novels. The list of our indulgences is endless. There's the exotic dancer, there's the religious fanatic, the alcoholic, the adrenaline freak, the prostitute with a man, the man with a prostitute, the eloquent pastor who seduces with his words, and the woman who seduces with her body. But getting a taste of transcendence from a non-transcendent source like that literally has the same effect on our soul as taking crack cocaine. Because the gratification touches us in the heart place made for communion with God himself without itself being transcendent, it attaches itself to our desire with chains that literally render us captive. We call that addiction in our society today. Like the study I mentioned with the 25% of internet time being used to download pornography. What are men looking for? Think about that for a moment. What are men looking for? William Blake, the poet, gives us a clue both of what we're looking for as men and the hidden trap in our search when we go that way, he says this, the naked woman's body is a portion of eternity too great for the eye of man. Isn't that a powerful sentence? It both tells us that what the man is looking for is something eternal in nature, but he's trying to attach it to a mortal beauty that God has made that cannot be separated from a woman's heart and it cannot be the transcendent source of our life. So it entraps us. Millions of men in America are addicted to pornography. It is just one of the most powerful things in front of us that Satan uses to render us captive. When we try to satisfy the thirst of our heart, everyone, with those water that is less than eternal, it literally overpowers our will, doesn't it? Jonathan Edwards said it becomes like a viper hissing and spitting at God and at us if we try to restrain it. That's how powerful the longings of our heart are. We call that condition addiction. 
And Gerald May says addiction is humanity's most powerful psychic enemy to a love affair with God. Robert Bly, the author that many of you know from Iron John and other men's books, describes the lifestyle of certain men and women who never come to understand what they're really looking for. They never come to understand what C.S. Lewis told us in his words about the scent of a flower we've never found. Bly says this, romantic love and why it's so powerful. The man sees a woman across the room and knows immediately that it is she, spelled with a capital S. He drops the relationship he has, pursues her, feels wild excitement, passion, beating heart, obsession. After a few months, everything collapses and she becomes an ordinary woman. Of course, for the woman, great power, because here's a man who will literally rearrange his life for her. But it isn't real power. And when he leaves her, she feels insignificant and small, abandoned, powerless. Every man that enters a brothel is looking for God, said G.K. Chesterton. And that's the secret that Satan has hidden from us all so well, the identity of the lover that we're really looking for. Scott Peck, who authored The Road Less Traveled, you know, just became very successful as an author and a speaker, and I know what he was feeling as a man, not because I'm that successful, but I can picture it. He ended up having an affair after all that and then wrote another book, and in his book he writes this, God is the only romance left. It's just so sad that he had to go through the affair to find that out. Life on that straight road the highway of discipline and duty that tells us we can make our way by the religion of tips and principles of the religion of Mr. Pritchard, it really gives us no wisdom as to what we're to do with the depth of desire God's placed in us, everyone. If we anesthetize it, we just become relational islands, unavailable to everyone that really needs us in our lives, like the father who lowers his newspaper with annoyance at his family, chaos going around but makes no move to speak his life into it, if we try to gain our transcendence through indulgence, soon enough, familiarity breeds contempt. We're driven to search for mystery elsewhere. So, the man who's having an affair must have another, and the woman who's an alcoholic must drink more and more to find a window of feeling good. There's only one being who can satisfy the last aching abyss of the human heart, said Oswald Chambers, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the question is, once we're there, how do we find our way out of Vanity Fair? How do we get out on the road again? And the first answer is by allowing ourselves to be a lot more thirsty than we have been. I mentioned the good friend who talked about just being a deist, feeling like she'd kind of given up, that God really wanted to commune with her heart, and to have to let herself begin to want that again. Sometimes God arouses our thirst with the beauty of a sunset or unexpected kindness of a friend. He has a lot of ways of doing it, but when that happens, when our passions are stirred, whether it's in a movie, a poem, a conversation with a friend, that is God wooing our heart to life again, inviting us back out on the road. A second answer to how we leave Vanity Fair, if that's where we feel like we've been living, is just by remembering. For most of us, there's a reason that we took up residence in Vanity Fair in the first place. Something about the arrows, sometimes it's the condemnation or judgment from our loved ones or our church, the ones we most hoped would support us. 
sometimes because those around us tell us that this is as good as it gets and we should learn to be satisfied. Sometimes God literally sends us the Holy Spirit to help us remember why we resigned ourselves to Vanity Fair to begin with. The movie The Lion King, you all remember the story, at least if you have kids, you've probably seen it several thousand times. But Simba the young lion, the father, his father was the king. Simba's uncle, Scar, had convinced Simba that his father's death was his fault and had literally convinced him out of shame that he should leave the Pride Lands. So Simba went off full of shame and the wounds of his father's death, met up with the Hakuna Matata boys, uh, Timba and Pomone, and just took up the Bobby McFerrin lifestyle of don't worry, be happy. Well, basically, Na'a, his childhood sweetheart, comes and finds him. She's out hunting, and she's telling him that things have really gone to pot back at the Pride Lands. There's no food. The hyenas have taken over everything. And they literally need Simba to come back and take his place in the larger story and to be the king. But Simba's heart is filled with the wounds and the loss of his father, and Nala can't budge him. So God sends the Holy Spirit in the form of Rafiki the baboon to remind Simba of who he really is. But before he was willing to leave Vanity Fair, Simba had to be willing to face the wounds from his past and enemy of his soul who was out to destroy him. Doing so sent him back out on pilgrimage again with hope and courage, but also left him facing the unknown questions of desire. Was he the cause of his father's death? Would he be blamed for it? Would he regain his kingship? Would anyone follow if he tried to leave? Trying to move past your own spiritual heritage brings up those unknown questions for us all. I mentioned the men in my family, a certain heritage of silence. Sometimes when I'm speaking, I can feel their silence grab me, and I can feel myself having to fight against it. And sometimes I say, I should just go be a manager of a Target store. That should be my vanity fair. Whatever your journey is, whatever the issues of your heart are, George MacDonald describes what we often go through when we dare to thirst more deeply. He says this, It's hard for us to rouse our spirits up. It's the human creative agony. Though but to hold the heart an empty cup, or tighten on the team the rigid rein, many would rather lie among the slain than creep through narrow ways the light to gain, than wake the will and be born bitterly. Part of the secret to becoming a wild lover again is to be willing to thirst deeply enough so that we're aware of our own emptiness and longing. Remember the old love songs where a, a boy's sweetheart had gone away for the summer? And he would go down to the shore and stand, or a girl, and wait for their lover's return. That's the picture of holding their heart in emptiness. And the song just wouldn't be the same if the lyrics went. So after his lover left, he went to the local piano bar and found a replacement right away. That just wouldn't be the same. Part of what God asks us to do is choose him over and against other lovers. And to leave our hearts partially empty at times until he returns to speak to us more clearly. Once we start remembering with that kind of thirst, we're ready for the open road again. We get up, adjust our knapsack for the unknown journey ahead, 
And something at that point might make us search in our pockets for an old scrap of paper. And on it's the rest of the verse written by the traveler out ahead of us on the highway of the heart. And the words on it always used to bother us when we came across them back in Vanity Fair. Now we read them for assurance. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So we strike off down the road feeling much more alive than we have in a while, and we're clueless as to how we're going to face all the unknowns out there on the open highway. But we feel a gladness to be on our way. It's timeless. It's still so powerful where our hearts go when we choose other lovers than God as lover. And the bondages that that creates, the addictions, the disappointments, the entrapments, until we turn back to our true love. This is the Ransomed Heart Podcast, and you've been listening to Brent Curtis in Session 7 on The Sacred Romance.